Bonjour and welcome to the Recruitment Flex. I'm Serge and as always joined by Shelly Billinger. Shelly, how are you? I'm good, Serge. Another day in paradise. In paradise. You're always complaining about the weather. So why do you think this I is I am paradise? not. You're yeah. the one bitching about the weather. It's just, it's another beautiful day. I tell you. And today I have the privilege to introduce our guest today. Someone new to the show. We've not had her on before. So let me welcome to the show, Vered Levant, who is the lead executive officer at Vimy HR. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I love how you pronounce that Levant. It's did so... I say that? Did I do that right? I'm actually going to start pronouncing my last name like that because it sounds way fancier. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like French, <laughs> like Paris French. Yes, like oh. fancy French. Fancy French, exactly. Okay, no offense, Serge. <laughs> <laughs> the real French. <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you so much for joining us, Farad. And so let's start with a little bit about you and your journey into HR, because I did a little research on your background and I am dying to hear this story because you have a BA in economics and you're in HR. Like, how does that happen? <laughs> Take us it, there. It boggles my mind still how I landed here. And my whole journey has been just based on circumstances. When I graduated from my BA in economics, I went into sort of a project management role where I was managing labor market information projects for the environment sector. And a lot of the issues coming up at that time for small businesses in the environment sector were around HR issues. They couldn't compete with the large companies. They couldn't compete with oil and gas companies. They couldn't find the right talent. They couldn't pay them as well. And I found it fascinating. I knew nothing about HR. And then shortly after, I was offered an opportunity to actually take on an HR role in another organization. Didn't know anything about it. They said, you know what, we'll train you. We'll teach you all about this. You've already done some interviewing in your project management role. The rest, we can teach you. And about a year in, they said, you know what, you're really good at this. You get it. And that was it. That was the journey. I found it a fascinating field because every day was different. Further on to that, like you're maybe one in a million that goes from the corporate world to become an entrepreneur, starting your own company, because you're the founder of VMEHR, correct? I am. So how does somebody go from this big corporate world and then successfully grow VMEHR? Talk a bit about your journey as an entrepreneur. I wish I had a more inspiring story about this too. And I do not. So I was in corporate HR for maybe 12 years at that point, and the economy started to tumble in Calgary. I was part of supporting, unfortunately, some really mass layoffs, and it was devastating for me. I had been part of that organization for 10 years, and so I was laying off people that I considered close friends, and I had supported in their careers for 10 years. And it was really hard for me to recover from that. And I actually saw the organization a little differently. And I saw my career differently. It was hard to really move on and say, okay, I'm making an impact in people's lives, but it doesn't feel positive anymore. And the reality was that was the environment in Calgary at the time. If I wanted another HR role outside of that organization, it would look exactly the same. So I had left 
And my team thought I was absolutely bananas. I just said, I just can't do this anymore. I can't walk into this office and put on a face. I was really unhappy because the things that I enjoyed about HR were actually creating those relationships with the leadership team, positively impacting the business. Those were the things that really filled my bucket. And, you know, I I literally sat on the couch, not knowing what I was going to do for about four months, watching TED Talks, looking for some inspiration. And then I started having some of my network reaching out to me for advice, support. And I had an aha moment one day to say, actually, I could probably just do this. Why don't I just become an independent consultant, see what happens? And I got my first in-house gig. And then I got some more and I started about a year in, had to hire our first consultant on the team and it just kept growing, kept getting more referrals. And now we have a marketing group. We've expanded into employer branding. We have clients across the country. Well, I don't know how it happens. (laughs) Congratulations. I was was reading an article on the weekend. I think it was from Fast Company, but there was research done on entrepreneurs who become incredibly successful. And there was one common element for all of them, every single one. And that is at some point in their career, they were dissatisfied with whatever situation they were in, and they left without a parachute. And the people around you went like, maybe we need to get you a counselor, but very successful entrepreneurs all had that same thing. Like there's not enough money in this world to pay me to do this anymore. And having that aha moment that I can make this happen on my own. A lot of people think that all you have to do is hang out a shingle and people will come running. And I think You have to go into it knowing what's really important to you because that's what's going to drive you in the tough times. Because being an entrepreneur is not easy. It's not easy to build a business. It's not easy to continually get the new clients and make sure everyone's satisfied. Mm -hmm. But what drives you is that passion and ensuring that you're aligned with the whole reason you started to do this. That's your anchor. Yeah. So what I want to dig into, I'm going to make an assumption a lot of your clients are SMB. And obviously SMBs is a completely different challenge when it comes to attracting what we call top talent. When we're competing for talent, small, medium business compared to a more corporate setting, there's advantage and disadvantage. What's your thoughts as far as what SMBs can do to compete with large organizations for that top talent? There's a ton of advantage. I was really fortunate to have one of my first experiences out of university in a smaller organization. And the reason that I was successful in my other roles after I had left is because I had to wear multiple hats. In smaller organizations, you have the opportunity as an employee to do so much more than your role. And you are exposed to so much more around how the business operates, how you do marketing, to be a brand ambassador, to really take ownership of where that company is going. So I think that is definitely a competitive advantage that small organizations have is as an maybe entry-level, mid-level employee, you have the ability to learn so much, to take on a lot of responsibility and to the other pieces, 
for those who have sort of an entrepreneurial drive as an employee, it's a great match. I completely agree. It's got its benefits of working at a smaller company, but how do you communicate that to be able to get found and to be able to tell that story in your head? Yeah, it's all about employer branding. So as small businesses, I really, truly believe there is an opportunity to tell your story. Okay. And a simplistic way of how to do that is really capturing your employee value proposition and starting to cascade that in different forms, your job postings, your career site, and then also you're creating a common language for your staff members to start to articulate that externally. They're going to be the driver to bringing people in. Oh, 100%, especially in a small business. So what does good employment branding look for a small, medium business? You mentioned career site, job, but what I still see with SMBs and corporates is corporate lingo. It's a small business, but it looks like KPMG wrote it. How do we get away from that and actually showing an authentic message. Let's speak like real people speak, not in corporate lingo. Well, the big belief that I have, and this is our strategy for creating the value proposition for these small organizations, it's all about the founder. Whatever yeah. values are driving that founder, my story that I just told you, what was important to me, what was the driver for me in starting this, capturing that in your employee value proposition. What's the whole mission? What's the values? What is the vision that I have mm -hmm. for VimEHR? How do we tell that story? How do we inspire others who have a similar value system? How hard is it to get founders to articulate that? And the reason I say that is as soon as you say employment value proposition, they think expensive, this is gonna take years, we don't have the resources for this. Like even using the term employee value proposition, it's like, what do you mean? How do you break that down so that, you know, anyone can relate to it? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's really hard for a founder themselves to do it. You really do need an external person that's going to be able to digest that story and break it down into real authentic words around who you are and why mm -hmm. you exist. It's really about company purpose. Yeah. And what it's like to work there. Mm -hmm. What I even want. Exactly. To yeah. yeah. What's interesting is we see that term, like if we did a survey on job postings on how many job ads call for entrepreneurial spirit or entrepreneurial thinking and what the hidden meaning is behind that. Because I know for people who want to work in that type of environment where we can turn on a dime, right? Hey, if we need to change compensation or you want to take on a different role, we're not bound by the same chains that big corporate does. But do you think most people understand that when they see that term in a job ad, having entrepreneurial drive? No, they don't understand that because if they <laughs> haven't done it before... <laughs> I don't know what that means. I wouldn't yes. have known what that means. I remember being in a larger organization where that was one of the values. What? Why would I be here if I had entrepreneurial spirit? <laughs> I'd be on my own. Isn't it ironic, right? <laughs> I think it's cloaked for 
I don't know. Are they trying to trick people? <laughs> I, I don't know if they purposely trick people, but if we look at employee value proposition, it's as much about excluding than including. And I know that sounds oxymoron, but if you are a company that is, say, a startup compared to a corporate environment, the startup environment is going to be completely different. Yes, you are going to get more leniency. You're going to get more authority. You're going to be able to grow quicker. The expectations is you're not going to be working 40 hours in a startup because if you do, you're in the wrong environment. Tell the truth, right? If it is an entrepreneurial enterprise, well, those people coming in, they have to have an understanding of what that means. Yeah, you are going to work on Saturdays because we have a client that asked us for a project on Friday afternoon and it needs to be delivered on Monday. And that is the only source of revenue we're going to get this month to be able to pay the bills compared to, yes, go work at a large oil and gas company. You're going to work nine to five or whatever those hours and it's going to be fine. Looking at your employee value proposition, then looking at branding. What's your thoughts on being way more honest with employee branding. If you suck at something, why not call it out? Oh, I completely agree. You have to be honest. Why would you want to spend all of that time and money recruiting to sell them a bill of goods? They come in and go, wait a minute. They never told me that we have to work on the weekends or that we're out in the middle of nowhere and there's no coffee shop close by, whatever it is. You really do have to be honest around the work environment. It's actually fascinating because I do have some clients that just get it. Automatically, we walk in there and they just get it. One in particular that I think of, they work really long hours and they have high expectations of their employees. And they are very clear about that in the interview stage. They're trying to scare them off. And I think it's great. I agree. I think it's as much about repelling people as it is attracting. Something I want to come back to, though, you kind of hit a nerve with me is having to lay off your friends. Oh, my God. I have always said that is probably the most soul sucking work that anybody could be asked to do. And HR usually gets handed that bag of shit and you've got to deliver it, whether, you know, larger companies or mid-size, I wouldn't say the small companies, because usually if you're under a hundred, you're very, very careful about every single hire, potentially. But how should companies be handling exits and layoffs? Because if it's done wrong, it can really negatively impact your employment brand, but more importantly, people left behind. I mean, it must be a reality in Vimy HR that you're having to help with this. So is there a good way to do it? a good way to do it. I don't think it ever feels good, right? There's always some damage control that you have to do after the fact. I suggest that you do after the fact. It can be done better. One of the foundational things to consider is how you showed up at the beginning when you're hiring someone, what you promise them has to be the same as how you exit. For example, if you say that the care about one another, we want to hear everyone's opinion, we want to have everyone's voice heard, that you are showing up that way throughout the whole employee experience, as well as to the end. And a lot of companies are afraid of the legalities of exiting someone, and they don't do it as much as I would like to see with a humanistic approach. And it's really important in small organizations 
you know, do the exit, but maybe follow up after they've signed their paperwork, take them out for a coffee. There's an opportunity to recover and really show that you care. If that is part of who you are as an employer. What happens if you don't care? Yeah. If you don't care, then hopefully that showed up at the beginning too. Yeah, exactly. That maybe that's who you are as an employer. And you've made that perfectly clear. Like you are just here to do the work and get a whole bunch of revenue through the door. Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit more about the fear around the legal side of the exit? Why mm-hmm. is that? I've never in my entire career heard anyone say, oh, we should have waited a little bit longer to let them go. <laughs> what is the fear around it? Where's that come from? I- I think because there are, and we're probably seeing it more often than we did at the beginning of my career, is that there are more former employees who are willing to put in claims for wrongful termination, wrongful dismissal. I've had clients before as well who still live in that fear, but they didn't approach the whole employment relationship properly. That's where the real issue is. Mm. where there wasn't enough transparency about it not being a fit, about it not working. And then that person is completely caught off guard that they were let go. And maybe they didn't provide enough severance and all of those pieces. So I think really being transparent around who you are to begin with as an employer Mm. and what your purpose is and how you're going to show up and what you offer. And then making sure that carries into the employment relationship and that there's open and honest communication. If someone's not meeting what you're expecting and what you have showcased is important in the organization, that you do something about it earlier. It just leads me to a question, you know, with smaller companies, sometimes they have this tendency to say we're like family. When you're going in and consulting with SMB or with small business founder led Is that a bit of a flag for you? What's your experience been? I've had a hard time with that. I've worked in organizations where they've said the same thing. And that's not true. You're not family. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe they do care about you. But at the end of the day, business is business. And they can exit you at any time. Hopefully with really good reason. But you're not family. You are an employee. There is a relationship there. Mm -hmm. But it can end. Or you can leave at any time as well, right? You can't really do that with your family. Although some days I'd just like to take off for a couple of days and not tell anyone, <laughs> but it doesn't work in a company or at home. It's true. Uh, it's true. So <laughs> I do want to go back into recruitment a little bit. I'm always curious to know what the thought process of a recruiter and what's going on in the market itself. What's one thing about recruitment that, you think or say that almost no one agrees with you about? That's a rather hard question. I don't know. I don't like using rubrics. I really have a hard time. Thank you. Shelly's like, thank so, you. Rubrics? What is rubrics? Right? Well, like, I mean, a rating system. Oh, okay, okay. All right, yes. It doesn't show personality. And really, for me, there is that element that AI will never take away. There's that personality element to it and fit that actually you can't really put into words sometimes. Oh, so agree with you. I think what makes my hair stand up on end too is the use of behavioral descriptive interviewing. Oh, yeah. 
oh, please, you know, 1970 called. They want their interview <laughs> guide back. Have we learned nothing about human behavior since 1970? Shelly, I'll still take that over their pet questions. Because every hiring manager has a pet question that they will ask that makes absolutely no sense. And that's the first thing working with an organization. Tell me all the questions you think that are the best questions. Let's just eliminate those. And let's start with something that is a little bit more systematic in measuring. I agree with you on that. So you mentioned AI. AI is definitely making some big buzz across the world. There is this perception with a lot of career coaches and resume writers that, hey, I'm going to write a resume because it's going to bypass the ATS bot, which we know for a fact that 98% of companies are not leveraging any AI matching tool. There's two questions that I hear. How do I find a hidden job market? And the second one is, how do I get a resume so it bypasses the bot? And I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. It doesn't exist. Someone's selling you shit. So tell me, <laughs> do you hear anything about that? Yeah, and I agree with you, Serge. It doesn't bypass anything. Even in terms of my experiences, the applicants that are most successful are either referrals because someone has vouched for that person or they're authentically showing up in a way that matches what you're looking for. But it's yeah. not just those blanket resumes that someone has put together and they've highlighted all the things in your job posting because that is such a turnoff. It's actually someone who's like, no, this is who I am and I'm going to showcase it well. And hopefully that's exactly what you're looking for. I'm going to challenge you on one point here. There's always been a perception that referrals are a really good source of hire, but data is showing very clearly that actually the worst quality of hire is referrals. And there's hmm. a couple of factors to it. We skip a lot of steps. We have a bias because Joe worked with them and he thinks they're great, but Joe is remembering working with them seven years ago and it's a completely different role and the person doesn't work out. I was a little bit shocked because my perception was exactly as yours, but referrals are actually the worst quality of hire from everything we're seeing. Are you surprised by that? I am surprised by that, but I'm also going to challenge you back because sure. why would you think that seven years is a good source of data? I'm using that as an example because the other factor too is there's less likelihood that we fire a referral as well. Even though they're uh, underperforming, there's less chance we're going to have disciplinary discussions because that person referred them and they might be one of our top employees, right? And there's multiple things. We have them skipping steps. So I am starting to challenge really anything when it comes to referrals, because I've seen it firsthand of putting candidates in front of hiring managers. And one is a referral from someone internally. And the other one's a rocks. Let me use oh, yeah. another word in rockstar. Top performer. A top performer. Mm -hmm. And they choose the referral one because there's some sort of certainty with that one, even though it's a lower quality candidate. I would say put them in the mix. Yes. You yeah. should be comparing. There's a difference between being lazy in the recruitment process and just going towards that referral. But I think there is an opportunity, especially as a small organization, you have hopefully people who are really a good fit yeah, and they would know who else would be a good fit. And they can also clearly tell the story of what it's like to work there. For me, I have seen some success there. Would I say let's only use referrals? Absolutely not. I was just going to add to that. What's really, from my experience, fascinating to see is if it's a company, a small company, 
like less than 50. Chances are that you have a really good understanding of what that role is because a small company is just that. You get to wear different hats and move around. Whereas being referred in big corporate, I find that the vast majority of the time, all you're doing is connecting, you know, I think my next door neighbor's first cousin said something about supply chain and we've got a supply chain job open. And that's Mm. how the referral happens because there's money involved too, right? Like you throw money in the mix and oh my gosh, you will drive a completely different behavior on referrals. Then you've got the risk of, have we failed them by not properly explaining exactly what the role is? Well, yes. And I will guarantee 99 times out of a hundred, maybe even a hundred out of a hundred, your job ad is a job description that nobody fucking understands <laughs> unless you actually do that job, right? So mm-hmm. how do you expect referrals from employees when we have never shared with them what exactly are we looking for? It's really just set up to fail, I think. Most referral programs, that's my two cents. Well, exactly. The minute you throw money into it, it creates a different incentive that is actually not positive. So- We've had a really challenging 2020, 2021, 2022 with everything in HR. It's been probably the hardest Mm. department to work in these three years. But we are looking at 2023 very optimistically, 2024 Mm -hmm. as well. Any predictions for the world of work? I am going to say that the pandemic was such a gift to workplaces. It really transformed things in a way that created a better space for employees to show up as themselves. And my prediction is that is going to continue because it has the opportunity of creating higher level productivity if people are comfortable at work to be themselves. My prediction is that will continue and employers will have a greater understanding of what that really means Mm. in terms of gender, in terms of diversity, also leveraging skills outside of what that position is. Very interesting. I think you're probably a hundred percent right. Yeah. Very. It was so good to have you on the show. We've known each other for, I think a couple of years now, maybe three, four years. years. So Well, it's good to finally have you on the show. If anyone listening wants to get a hold of you or finding out more, what's the easiest way to get a hold of you? Yeah, just get onto our website at vimehr.com and there's our contact information there, info at vimehr.com. Perfect. Great. Jared, thank you. Awesome speaking with you. Have a terrific day. I hope to talk to you again. Yes, you too. Thanks so much. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On PressBox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on PressBox Access.